Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. I love so much in that museum. I love the things that break my heart, like the shackles of a young child or the casket of Emmett Till. I love the things like the powder horn of Prince Simbo, who was a native African who carved this powder horn in the colonial period. And this becomes one of our most important and eloquent objects that speak of African-American participation for American freedom. That's Kinshasa Holman Conwell, Deputy Director of the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Scholar, author, museum director, artist, and thought leader, Kinshasa Conwell was central to the realization of the nation's museum devoted to African-American history and culture and came equipped to that Herculean task after having served as senior policy advisor for the Museums and Community Initiative of the American Alliance of Museums, among multiple other consultancies in New York City. She was director of the Studio Museum in Harlem from 1988 to 1999, where she conceived, organized, or co-organized more than 40 exhibitions, many of which traveled nationally. She writes and lectures on art, museums, and cultural policy. A native of Atlanta, she attended Mount Holyoke College as a National Achievement Scholar, graduated magna cum laude from Howard University with a BFA, and received an MBA from the University of California, Los Angeles. Welcome, Kinshasa. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you, Max. Thank you, Kinshasa. It's great to be with you today. I wanted to start with the passing of two giants in the civil rights movement, the Reverend C.T. Vivian and Congressman John Lewis on the same day, July 17th. Might you have some reflections to share? Indeed. Both of these icons of the freedom movement have been on my mind for these days since they left us. And um, the poignant double leaving, if you will, has been quite something. And in an interesting way, Max, I have been as inspired as I've been mournful. I find that their lives and their example just animate everything that I'm interested in. I thought in younger days, which was not long ago, that I might pursue a social justice way of being a professional because I was steeped in the civil rights movement. Though Mr. Lewis was not born in Atlanta, he is so associated with Atlanta, which is my hometown. I grew up in my household with my parents Carl and Mariella Holman, steeped in that movement, and people like John Lewis and his fellow student movement folks like Charlene Hunter-Galt and Julian Bond and Lonnie King, Ruby Dara Smith, and many others were part of my environment growing up. To me, they were heroes. I didn't have superheroes out of comic books. I didn't have movie star heroes or athletes. The people who peopled the civil rights movement, and particularly those who were closer to my age within 10, 15, 20 years were inspiring. I couldn't quite imagine what it must have been like to be a John Lewis, but as I see the images again and again of particularly the Edmund Pettus Bridge and the horrible beating at the hands of law enforcement, right? The groups that protect you, as I see those, it is so distressing then again, in that double consciousness of Mr. Lewis, that inspiration and how he was marked by that bloody day, it was almost a benediction. 
and it became a way to sacrifice self for the cause of others that animated his life. I also think of how he was viewed by people he encountered. I was in his presence many times, particularly in the days after the museum was built. I often went to receptions where he was present, and I would notice how the room would change when he walked in. He never had an entourage of more than maybe his trusted aides. He was a small man in stature, but he was a giant in terms of his humanity. I never saw him turn away someone who came to him. And you think of political people. People stream to them because they have a bill they want passed, or they have something they want done. It was almost as if people just wanted to be in his presence. He never turned down a photograph. He never turned away someone who wanted to be connected to him. In one brief story, I was asked by colleagues in the museum field if I could encourage Mr. Lewis to address Advocacy Day one year here in Washington. And I said, sure, let me see. And I found myself worrying. Oh my goodness, will my colleagues revere this man that I totally respect as one of the greatest human beings to walk the earth? And will they somehow not get him? Well, I should not have been worried. The minute he stepped to the podium, his dignity, his presence, and his encouraging words were extraordinary to these museum folks who were on Capitol Hill to ask for money. And he told them a story similar to the get in good trouble, but he mostly told them to be brave, to be courageous, and to stand up for what they believed in. Well, of course, it's over, standing ovation, people crying, people coming up to hug him. So that was John Lewis. C.T. Vivian, I did not know well at all, but I encountered him a few times. One of the times was when there was an event at the White House during President Obama's term, and I brought my mother, and I came up to him and said, Reverend Vivian, I'd love to take a picture with you and my mom. And he said, sure. And I told him who my mother was, who my father was. He was just so gracious. And I have this beautiful picture of them. He's radiating, again, this incredible generosity and availability. And the last piece on him, there's a wonderful interview with him in the Civil Rights History Project that the museum and the Library of Congress did. And it's a very long interview. I commend it to people, but you got to settle down with a cup of coffee. But one of the things he talked about in his work in trying to integrate places in the North, Illinois, being one of them in the South, Nashville being another one, is he wanted Black people to have the same human ability that anyone had to sit down and have a meal like any other person. It was just simple and beautiful eloquent, and it was quintessential C.T. Vivian. Kinshasa, those are very powerful reminiscences. Thank you. And poignant at this very divided moment in our nation, I'm wondering, in light of their passing, how are you feeling about our future as a country? And are you imagining there are people ready to step into their shoes? I'm feeling and hoping, Max, that people will truly take on their mantle and that we as Americans and as world citizens and non-citizens will live out the promise that these men and the women who were their compatriots espoused. There's talk, for instance, of renaming the Edmund Pettus Bridge, a bridge named after a vile, racist grand wizard of the Klan, to name it after Mr. Lewis. 
I'm with the people who say, let's name a bill or something very active is after John Lewis because that's who he was. I am on the one hand pleased that the notion of white supremacy, which many of us have known about and lived with all our lives, is getting currency. But currency can become quite cheapened if it becomes sloganeering, if it becomes a cudgel to beat one's adversaries with, or even those who are on your side in quotes, but are perhaps not totally abiding by the doctrine that you think is the way to go. I'm encouraged, especially though I will say by younger people, just as when John Lewis was young and Julian Bond was young and Charlene hunter Gault and Dory and Joyce Ladner and Bob Moses and Messrs. Cheney, Goodman and Schwerner, when all of them were young and where their mentors like Fannie Lou Hamer and Arthurine Lucy and people like Diane Nash, I'm encouraged that it was when they were quite young that they put their lives on the line. I hope that young activists don't have to put their lives on the line in some way, but I'm looking to some of our millennial and Xers even, even as old as that, right, to take on that sense that they too can be leaders, that they can lead from the middle, that they don't have to have a grand title, they don't have to have an organized incorporated institution, that they can, from the energy, from the brilliance, from the commitment, of their work, they can inspire us. And I hope to see less of the jockeying for positioning and the one-upsmanship. There's a lot of language out there about virtue and about weaponizing that I just don't have time for, Max. So great, you come up with a new phrase, but what are you doing as Mr. Lewis, as Reverend Vivian and others did, what are you doing to make other people free? What are you doing to make life more bearable for people who are living on subsistence wages or have no wages. That's why I admire somebody like the Reverend Barber so much, because to start a poor people's campaign in the midst of the most affluent country in the world and to insist that the voices of poor people be raised is so inspiring. The Black Lives Matter movement, which is different from the original organization, but the movement for Black Lives is most enriched when all folks who are interested in freedom, justice, and equality come together. So I'm optimistic, and I'm just hoping, Max, that we can get a lot more light and a lot less heat. And I don't mean righteous anger, because I'm all for that. You remember me. But not anger for the sake of showing off. And one-upsmanship, I'm totally done with that, really. If you're in that arena, step out and let someone come in who wants to work for the common good. You're so right. Those examples begin at home. In 68, when I was 12, my parents encouraged me to raise money for the Poor People's Campaign, which I remember vividly. Both our dads were English professors. Your late father, M. Carl Holman, was that, and a published poet, a playwright, and a major civil rights leader, president of the National Urban Coalition. And you spoke movingly about him at the Library of Congress some years ago. What can you tell us about his influence and the influence of your mother, Mariella Holman, who taught French at Booker T. Washington High School, as you were starting out? Yes, you know, as I look back over the years, Max, the things that I almost took for granted, that is having these wonderful, brave young people in our home, both in Atlanta and in Washington, and thinking, okay, these are my dad's students, or 
these are the young women that my mom is counseling about their boyfriends, or these are all the people that my mother is feeding. I think she was one of the prime feeders of the movement. By the time we moved to Washington, my parents were hosting a brunch during the Black Caucus weekend. And in the earliest days, my mother cooked all the food, if you can imagine. The combination of those two was quite powerful because the home and household was a place where the Atlanta Inquirer newspaper was birthed with, again, Charlene Hunter-Gold and other young reporters, a guy named John Gibson, his brother Jim Gibson, and where the Atlanta student movement really had some of its earliest beginnings. As you live with parents whose daily lives are devoted not only to you, because unlike some activists who sometimes forget their kids, we were never forgotten. We were always embraced, loved, thought of. And these older kids you know, who were really adults, these college students, were in some ways part of our family. They came in and out. In an ironic way, Atlanta was a dangerous place because it was segregated. In the surrounding areas were those kinds of sundown places, as in don't let the sun set on you. But within the city, within your neighborhood, it was a kind of neighborhood like a lot of American neighborhoods. The doors left open, back door, front door, people come in and out. I think of that stream of people there coming in and out and my parents being available to them for whatever it was. And I just think of the sound of the great old-fashioned typewriter and, you know, you have a writing family, Max, and you write yourself. But remember when typewriters made that great clacking sound, I remember hearing that sound coming from the basement of our home in Atlanta, or by the time we get to Washington, there's probably an electric typewriter. But that notion of that constant motion, the motion of freedom and the sound of freedom for me was my father's typewriter and that of his compatriots, the aroma of the wonderful meals that my mother fixed to nourish people. And then by the time we get to Washington, some of the faces changing, because by then Charlene had become a respected journalist for the New York Times, and Mr. Lewis was probably moving into the city council. Marion Wright, who became Marion Wright Edelman, was a young person, a lawyer, who was often a part of family discussions. And as time fast forwarded, and as we got older and we moved away, you could come home of a day and look at our parents' house and coming out the door would be Cleveland Sellers or Stokely Carmichael, both SNCC veterans. And also to find in later years that what started in Atlanta with clacking typewriters in the basement and young students earnestly risking their lives as Charlene did at the University of Georgia, as Mr. Lewis did later on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and as Julian and folks like Bob Moses and the Ladner sisters did going into the South to register people to vote, which as we found out with Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner could become a death sentence. That act of political will to try to help your fellow citizens be more free to be free at all was a life-risking situation. And so one could not help but feel that one's own life needed to be more than the everyday and more than something that was just for self. Our parents made us feel that we had to do more. My older brother was the most activist as a very young adult, practically a teenager. He organized in South Georgia. 
he was the only one of us that went to the March on Washington because you may recall that they didn't want young children to come there because they thought it would be dangerous. And surely that vaunted year of 63 was not only the year of the march, but it was the year of the bombing of the church in Birmingham. The last piece in this little story of my great parents was that to grow up as children in a society that told you that you were not enough, that you were less than, in a society with signs that said, you cannot come in here, whites only, but also in the subtle racism of dear Atlanta, and you would know Atlanta as well, we reserved the right to refuse service to anyone. What was years later that I realized that that was a general sign that people put in to keep so-called rowdy people out. But in Georgia, it meant you black people cannot come in here. But to grow up and be a full person, a fully realized person with a sense of self, a sense of worth, in a context of a society that told you the opposite, I, I give all praises to my parents for that. We felt safe, we felt loved, we felt secure in spite of the material circumstances of our lives as young Black children in a segregated world. I love that recollection of the typewriter as a sound that inspired you. I'm wondering, in the museum at which you're deputy director, if there are objects which you think could have a similar effect in nurturing a new generation of civil rights leaders. Gosh, this is always the hardest thing, Max, because I love so much in that museum. I love the things that break my heart, like the shackles of a young child or the casket of Emmett Till. I love the things like the powder horn of Prince Simbo, who was a native African who carved this powder horn in the colonial period. And this becomes one of our most important and eloquent objects that speak of African-American participation for American freedom. Speaking of freedom, probably the Joseph Trammell Freedom Papers grab me by the heart every time. They are papers that are in a small metal container. And this gentleman was free, but he had to carry them around with him, not unlike in apartheid South Africa, an African had to have a pass to show his or her status. Well, this gentleman had to have these papers and they were so precious to him. Well, they came down through the family and the family donated them to the museum. One of my favorite human beings that walked the earth is Harriet Tubman. And her life is one of struggle and of adversity to say the least. An enslaved person who freed so many others. We have a set of objects from a Dr. Charles Bloxon out of Philadelphia. And the shawl is a shawl that was given to her by Queen Victoria. And it's not so much the shawl itself, which is a beautiful thing to look at, but it's the fact that it allows you to see and connect to a historical figure who becomes alive by seeing that. And I think one of the things that museums do, Max, is they give us memories. And we know memories are highly imperfect. They're not like facts. Well, we know facts can be, in quotes, imperfect as well. The layers of memory that these objects invoke are just so amazing to me. 
I would not do justice if I did not say how much I adore and love our visual arts collection. And I was part of the formation of it with my colleagues, Jackie Serwer and Talisa Fleming, and they are the curators of that gallery. And Talisa continues to do that work since Jackie's, your good friend and mine, has retired. As we pursued works like Whitfield Lavelle's card series, or we purchased a Sam Gilliam at auction, or were gifted a Lorna Simpson, to be able to see art in part of the narrative of African-American life, the visual evidence of the creativity of Black people, but also objects that carry that story so that you can see if a painting is named after the period when Dr. King was murdered, even though it is an abstract piece by Sam Gilliam, it carries with it the powerful memory of that man in that moment. And the memory making of museums has never been more vivid to me than in my work at this museum. It has just been startling, wonderful, and evergreen. I cannot go through that museum without seeing something anew, seeing something differently, and also to see the people seeing the objects, listening to the voiced narratives of formerly enslaved people, seeing the cabin from Edisto Island, which housed generations of Black people. The talking of objects is one of the things I've always loved about museums. And I love that we have objects that speak to me, but speak to anyone who comes into our museum. With staggering impact, Kinshasa, and you've helped guide that museum in its first four years since being appointed to your current role in 2005 as a key steward of fundraising campaigns, of collections growth, exhibits, programming, and publishing. And yet there's still work to be done, of course. I'm wondering, what are the biggest misconceptions that your visitors have about our history? At the very gateway level, it's that people don't know it, Max. The numbers of people, many of them privileged to have been quite well-educated with advanced degrees in all kinds of wonderful Ivy League schools and HBCUs and varieties of the top state schools, just people who have had the advantage that should have afforded them some knowledge of this history, and they don't. And the common refrain, I had no idea, I didn't know. I take them at their word. These are not people who are shirking or stepping away from the responsibility of knowing history. What is also stunning, and when we reopen, we'll see this again, is the amount of time people spend in the museum. People stay in our museum for hours. And we who work in art museums know that we like to beg people sometimes stay a little bit longer. Don't just zoom by that work of art. We can't get people to leave which is one of the reasons we had to have a ticketing process because we had to pulse people in at a rate that would be safe and that would allow people to enjoy what they were seeing. But the intensity with which people look at objects, the conversations they have with each other, there are so many moments when people have conversations with strangers. I go as a spy. I've always loved to spy in my museums where I work, and I also love to spy in other people's museums. I like to kind of sidle up to people, and I think I'm inconspicuous, but I may not be. 
try to hear what they're saying. And I'm amazed at the number of stranger conversations, not strange conversations, but conversations among strangers. And people will just turn to someone and say, oh my God, or I can't believe it, or this is amazing. I was standing on the first floor of the museum one day and a woman turned to me and said, do you know how long I've been here? And I said, no. She said, six hours. And she said, and I'm not done yet. To see people who are drawn to things that you may not have thought of yourself. You expect people to love the blockbuster exhibition. You expect people to love the iconic object that is so bold. You know, the Tuskegee Flyer is just a dynamic looking thing. And then when you think of what it represents, on one level, they're the people who don't know this history and they are just amazed. And another, those who do know it and who talk about how much more they are learning. And I'm so delighted at the intensity of engagement. Kinshasa, you've spent a good portion of your professional life in New York City as director of the Studio Museum in Harlem for over a decade, and in pivotal roles such as project director for LINC, leveraging investments in creativity, and project director and managing editor for Culture Counts at the New York Foundation for the Arts. I'm more acutely aware than ever, sitting up here during the pandemic, how much New York has ceded in creative energy to other major centers around the country, including L.A., Chicago, and where you are in D.C. Would you agree with that? Uh, You want me to turn in my New York credentials, do you, Max? You know that I'll never be allowed back in. The governor's very tough. He doesn't mess around, but I'll play with some museum language and philosophical language. I do think that the decentering of culture has been going on for a while. There's some exciting things happening in Detroit, in Chicago. Probably one thinks more of the music, but Austin is this extraordinary place. New Orleans will always be a site of enormous cultural power. And I think speaking of New Orleans, part of that decentering has come from the fact that over the years that you and I have been in the field, the noticing of what culture is has changed in extraordinarily exciting ways, right? Souls Grown Deep, which I just adore as a concept and as a foundation, is dealing with the art of artists that people like you and Jackie and many others of us were saying was important to look at forever, right? And came out of places that weren't New York City or Los Angeles, right? And came from people whose extraordinary vision as artists is something that grabs you and won't let you go. So there has been a realization that the sites and sources of creativity are much, much more rich than we used to allow. That, as much as something like, say, the art market or large art museums in big cities like New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, has been part of what has changed things. So that when people realized that Thornton Dial was as complicated an artist as you'll ever see, that notion, which took a long time to see, and some people were much earlier than others and see, that helped lead to it because you can't have the center of the cultural and artistic universe being a place that isn't the genesis of the art itself, yes? Because everyone had to come to New York back in the day. It's not true. Artists do not have to be in New York. Sam Gilliam proved that. 
years ago. He did not hang out in New York. And Carrie Mae Weems, one of the most brilliant visual artists in the world, still makes her home in Syracuse. The artists decentered it, the curators who looked beyond New York. So that deinstitutionalizing of the notion of art has been an extraordinary vector in that work. We've both borne witness to that decentering, having both been members of the Association of Art Museum Directors with then well over 100 members from cities across the United States. But I will always think of you at the microphone at AAMD meetings, addressing an almost all-white organization with your characteristic honesty and humor and strength and graciously admonishing us all about the slow, halting changes in making museums more open, more diverse, and more accepting of change. Now that the topic is finally front and center and unavoidable, what's the responsibility of art museums in fostering more enlightened dialogue in this divided nation? Yes, yes. That image of me is something, I wonder if anyone ever recorded that. It might frighten me. I'll use two ways to answer this. One is, you may recall that one of the times I was at my most vehement, if you will, was when we were talking about the possibility of citing an AAMD meeting in a city that had recently put forward, I believe, some kind of proposal that disadvantaged and was discriminatory toward, we called them our gay brothers and sisters in, but LGBTQ people. I was appalled. I'm like, you're kidding me, right? We're going to have a meeting in a city that has said that part of our human beings, our brothers and sisters, are not worthy people. And I found myself invoking Bayard Rustin, who, of course, was one of the behind-the-scenes architects of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And one of the great things, of the many great things of the great A. Philip Randolph, one of the signal organizers in American political history, was that he refused to accept the advice of others, including prominent others who said, yes, he's your lieutenant, yes, he's smart, but you cannot have him involved in this march. It's too important. And if it comes out that he's gay, da-da-da-da-da-da. And I don't know what Mr. Randolph said, but let's just say Mr. Rustin was there. He's on the podium. And so I invoked his name at the time, right? Because I think those moments are important. We know, for instance, there is very close to the same letter, and I don't mean to demean it, but they're the same letter going to all art museums with particulars aimed at whatever art museum it goes to. Think about it, talk about it, be open about it, don't suppress it. And as I told our other colleagues, don't enter the conversation as the guilty person who is pleading their case to be forgiven. Enter it as a respected peer and respect those you have a conversation with as peers and don't be afraid and don't be reactionary. One of my favorite mechanical buttons on any device is the pause button. Not the stop, not the fast forward, not the rewind, but the pause button. Because when you pause, you can think, you can breathe. So what should you do? You should do something. And if you're the head of institutions that are the storehouses of human creativity, you're being less than faithful to your mission 
and your goal as an institution if you cannot be creative? In big forums, people ask me my opinion, but very few people have had intimate conversations with me where I could be candid and there are no cameras and there are no audiences and say, listen, for your specific museum, can you get a grip around this area or could you think about this artist? You shouldn't have the job leading an art museum if you're not gonna do the work. And if you don't see the work as being equity and inclusion, you shouldn't have the job. Well, as it's often said, hindsight is twenty twenty. Many art museums laid off frontline staff, predominantly people of color, as the pandemic hit. Then, a few weeks later, George Floyd's murder and a surge of global protests in solidarity with Black Lives Matter put those hasty decisions in a new and very unfavorable light. But here we are. So... What advice would you give to accelerate the training, hiring, and, and promoting of people of color in positions of leadership at museums? It's so interesting. I've had some version of this, not with the tragedy of dear Mr. Floyd as a context, but for, as you've indicated in a previous question, for a long time. And again, I am surprised that people don't look to the people that they know or that the people they know, no, who can say, this is how we did it, or I am the living example. And when you say, I was in that room and almost everyone else was white. I'm used to those spaces. I don't like those spaces, but I like the people for the most part. I have to say that Black people, Latino people, Native American people, Asian American people are not ciphers. They are not bots. They are people. So I'm always stunned, Max, by someone who may have an actual friend, you know, that's a horrible thing my best friends are, but may have an actual friend who is of a different race or gender. But when they look to engage people of that race or gender, they don't look at those people as humans like their friend. So if you know me, if you know some other curator or some other person who works in an institution, then Think of them as another human being you have a conversation with. And the other thing is, think of them as human assets. The notion has been, and that's why it's not worked, that anybody of color that's brought in has to be coming through a pipeline that starts from the beginning. There are plenty of skilled people of color out there who could be in leadership positions and professional positions. And surely that has changed. The curatorial ranks of museums, probably more than most, maybe curatorial and education have been populated with more diverse folks than ever. At the very top leadership, no. On the boards, no. But those curators who are in museums all around the country and in unlikely places, there's a brilliant young woman, African-American curator, who has wonderful ideas. And um, rather than just try to steal her, ask your colleagues there, what did they do in Bentonville, Arkansas to recruit an African-American woman to come and do the work on contemporary art? It's not on the polarities of rocket science and easy peasy. It's somewhere in between. I heard and hear the earnest lamentations of my colleagues, and they seem so perplexed. I mean, these are folks who are brilliant in their fields of art history, right? Or who are brilliant in understanding human relations in an abstract way, or ancient civilizations, or contemporary art. 
but somehow when dealing with real human beings and changing the way places run, they can't figure it out. Despite what we hear in these letters, the resistance is not always at the top only. Because the more we hear about microaggressions, the more we hear that, yes, the grievance may be with the head of the organization, but the grievance is also with the white staff members who work with those folks of color who, without thinking, say the most insensitive things possible because there's never been a reason for them to not say them. So if there's not a reason, and I don't mean by cudgels and beating up and outing and guilting people, but helping people hear themselves and helping people understand that change is not just bottom up or top down, it's everywhere. And finally, don't rely on someone else. Trustees shouldn't blame the staff. The staff shouldn't blame the trustees. Upper management shouldn't blame middle management. Middle management shouldn't blame upper management. It will only work if everyone's willing to change. That's the advice that's needed right now, urgently. We've watched as some museums have acquired more artworks by artists of color, have promoted into curatorial positions people of color. But these are, in some ways, baby steps towards what you're describing as a more equitable institution. Much in the news of late has been the premise that museums need to decolonize. In other words, that even with changes in personnel, the displays, the presentations, the interpretation carries with it often the legacy of a colonial past. What are your thoughts about addressing that in museum space? You have been involved, as have some of our other colleagues, in the notion of what it means to return, what it means to repatriate, what it means to interrogate notions of cultural patrimony, and how one has a respectful conversation about everything from Native American graves to the Elgin marbles. How do you have that conversation in a way that doesn't say, listen, you jerks, we can take care of this stuff better than you, so we're keeping it. I saw the French government taking active steps to return objects. And how do you do it, Max, so it's not a singular act? Yes? Mm -hmm. If you come up with a new agreement about antiquities and a particular relationship, country to country, organization to organization, how do you use that moment to form a relationship? Do you exchange scholars? Do you talk about the work? And again, you know a lot about this work that stays in storage forever. Do you talk about allowing the work to, once we can do this again, right? Allowing the work to travel, allowing the work to go on long-term loan or short-term loan, using this moment to increase the comity and the sense of connectedness, not an aggrieved, okay, you can have these back, or I didn't steal them. Those were my ancestors. Like, I love when people say, well, you know, I wasn't around during slavery. Yeah, neither was I. Somehow, I get to suffer the results of slavery. So if I get to suffer, you join the party too, and you join the conversation about how we ameliorate the decades, decades, hundreds of years of that practice. So yes, come up with the agreements, have the conversations, but don't let the conversation end with that exchange. 
I have one last question for you, Kinshasa. Your former boss, Lonnie Bunch, became the 14th secretary of the Smithsonian a year ago. I'm wondering, what has that appointment and his advocacy of social change through museums meant to you and to the museum? It's meant that we got a real beacon. There's a lot that we all learned in our programs, Max, about leadership. At the end of the day, leadership is not only about being able to articulate certain ideas, but it's to be, as they say, to be the change. And Lonnie is the change. He's lived change in his life. So this is not a Lonnie-come-lately notion to be about social justice. And whether he was in Chicago or Los Angeles or in the Smithsonian earlier days, there's a through line to his work, whether it was taking the Without Sanctuary exhibition on lynching at the Chicago History Museum, is the title now, or looking at the Black West in Los Angeles, and if you will, decolonizing that story, that opening up the story of the West as being a Black story as well, or talking about Black Olympians and looking at athletic prowess and bravery. When you look at Tommy Smith and John Carlos, looking at those moments consistently. So he came into office on a track record of telling the truth, on being true to engaging diverse groups of people to make decisions and to figure things out. He is the change, and that's what's inspiring to my colleagues and myself at the museum and to the rest of the Smithsonian because of his courage, because of his commitment, and his sincere interest in the well-being of all of us at the Smithsonian. His emails to us during this horrible pandemic have been really comforting. He's brave and he's courageous and he's caring. And that's not a bad set of attributes for many of our colleagues in the field to aspire to. Well, Kinshasa, as a friend of yours for some 30 years, I can't thank you enough for making time today to share a bit about your life, your career, and most importantly, to share some advice going forward for the museum field and for the public at large about our collective social responsibility. And I thank you so very much. Max, it's been my absolute pleasure. I enjoyed it so much. We've been speaking today with Kinshasa Holman Conwell, Deputy Director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.